images, at, we are imagers of God, eternal members in his family, okay? They have a lot more to do than just cloud lounging and singing. I know sometimes that's the popular idea of heaven is we're going to sit on clouds and play harps. But that's not what heaven's all about. Boring. Right. Heaven is new heaven and earth come together, ruling and reigning God's earth for his good pleasure and for his glory and for our enjoyment as well. So, but it's discerning that, but discerning that idea of heaven requires grasping heavenly hosts or angelic participation and reclaiming the nations currently under the dominion of evil supernatural beings, okay? A theology of the heavenly host is indispensable for conceiving our eternal destiny as co-rulers with Jesus. So we, we have to understand the heavenly host and how what role they play because essentially we're going to replace some of them because they failed. So uh, so that's part of this exercise is understanding the function and the responsibilities of angels. And we're going to see how some of their responsibilities mirror onto us and us occupying and being part of this world. And definitely, you know, Paul says in the New Testament, which we haven't got to, but he says, don't you know you will judge angels? Ever wonder why he says that? That's kind of a weird statement, but not if you begin to understand the function of the heavenly host and the reclamation and the renewal of the world and heaven, um, then it begins to make sense. And if you want to read a good book on this, this is uh, Michael Heisel's Angels, What the Bible Really Says About God's Heavenly Host uh, by Michael Heisel. It's not a very hard read, um, but it, it's like a 200-page book, and a lot of this content is coming from that book. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Okay, whoops. So the Hebrew word malak means messenger. Okay, told you I was going to go geeking out on you here today. It means messenger. The context determines whether the messenger is human or divine. Okay, and so typically what happens in your Bibles, if it's a human, they translated it messenger. If it's divine, uh, 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 spirit, right, they translate it angel in your Bible, okay? And so you got to pay attention to that, okay? And then sometimes the, the translators, there's a disagreement on whether it's human or divine, right? So, but that, that would be the first thing, okay? And then the Greek word for angelos is, means the one who brings a message or a messenger, okay? So that's, that's what angelos or angel means in classical Greek, okay? Now, words don't stay the same. I'm going to use one for an example, gay, right? Now, Franklin and Lynn for sure can remember when that word meant happy, go lucky, easygoing, right? Now, that word does not mean that today, does it? No, it doesn't. It means someone who is homosexual, right? So, Words change their meaning. Now, angel didn't totally change, right, uh, its meaning, but it, it began to be a broader term in the New Testament especially to speak of a spiritual being, okay? But to start with, angel speaks of 
one of the functions or one of the responsibilities of the heavenly host, which is to bring revelation, to bring a message, the messengers, right? So the role of angel has come to mean more than just messenger in all language and the New Testament. This change happened mainly in the intertestamental period. Today, it's, it has lost most of the sense of messenger and has come to reference the heavenly host, spiritual beings created by God. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Malachi would be a compound word, so no. Um, yeah, I would have to look, but it, I believe Malachi has, uh, messenger is probably part of it in his word, and then it has something else. Yeah. But I'd have to look that up. I think Malachi is God's messenger, but I'd have to double check that. So there are three kinds of terms for that describe angels, okay? Three kinds that you need to think of, three categories. One is their nature. So like human, we, we're human, we're embodied, we're physical, right? Uh, angels or spirits. So one is their nature. Second is their status or rank. Like you guys identify me by status and rank in the Midwest a lot. People love to call me what? Pastor, that's my, that's not what I am. I mean, who I am, right? But it's my rank, right? It's my status. I, I'm pastor, so status or rank. And the third is their function. So electrician, carpenter, security guard, retired, <laughs> preacher, what? Loafer. <laughs> I love it. Loafer. Yeah, I don't think any uh, angel has that. Well, yeah, I, you, if you're coming to Wednesday night Bible study, you're definitely not a loafer, are you? So there's these three, and we're going to look at these three different kinds and how they're used uh, through the Old Testament, and then we're going to look at how they're used in the Old Testament period and then even developed, and then how the Old New Testament takes that information and pa repackages it, really, okay? And that's part of what's going on in Revelation 14, 18, is that Second Temple literature information is being repackaged. All right. So the Hebrew and Greek words for angel describe which one it is, right? So it's either nature or function or uh, status, hierarchy. Does that make sense? So the first Hebrew word that addresses nature uh, should be, that should say is, uh, spirit. Uh, and it's the Hebrew word ruha. And it's just the word for breath. And it's used actually a lot of ways, right? Uh, we have spirit. He breathed into them the breath of life. That's, that's that word ruha. Um, so context is really important in determining whether it's talking about my, the, a human spirit or it's talking about an animal spirit or it's talking about the wind, the, the ruha that blows across the earth, right? Or if it's talking about spiritual spirits, right? Uh, disembodied spirits, okay? So a good reference, and actually this, actually this passage, 2 Kings 22, 19, uh, going to come up a lot because there's actually quite a few times that uh, 
this is in the text, uh, these different terms are used. So turn to Second King, uh, First King, sorry, twenty-two nineteen. This is one of those weird passages that um, that preachers typically don't like to talk about because it's kind of has some interesting conundrums in it. Um, I'm gonna not explore those heavily tonight. I can entertain them a little bit. Um, all right. So for First Kings twenty-two nineteen says, and. Micaiah said, therefore, Micaiah is a prophet speaking uh, to two kings, okay? Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. So he is where? He's seeing the Lord on his throne in heaven, okay? Um, and we've been talking about throne scenes in Revelation, right? And we went back to Ezekiel and Isaiah for those, but this could be another mirror for that, another piece of information. And all the hosts of heaven... Okay, so that's another word we'll be talking about, host, but we're not there yet. Standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Rothmoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. So he's with the heavenly host, spiritual beings. So it's some kind, it's a council. This is a council scene. He's having a discussion with Spiritual beings, a, a, angels, if you would, if we're going to catch hold that thing, but spiritual beings. Um, and a ruha, a spirit, so an angel, a spirit, came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. Okay? And the Lord said, by what means? And he said, I will go out and I will be a lying ruha, a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. This is a spider hiding right now. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord was putting a lying spirit in the mouth of all these, these, these your prophets, and the Lord has declared disaster for you. Okay? So this is that force used. It's talking about the nature. The nature of angels is what? Spiritual. Right? They're not embodied by, by their nature. Okay? The second word to address the nature of angels. Any questions about that or any curiosities? Because we're going to pull back into that a couple different times. But Yeah, so um, God's counsel is made up of good and bad angels. Yeah. In heaven, yeah. They do get cast down. We, we cover that in Revelation 12. Um, so, and, you know, we can debate. There is a lot of debate on where, the, where that is, right? Was that a, at the first advent uh, culminating in the crucifixion? Is that when they're cast out? Um, or, you know, was that at some other time? So I think it, my, I mean, my personal opinion, that was at crucifixion, they're cast out, they can no longer uh, enter and advocate against uh, God's people anymore. Um, based on Revelation 12, mainly. 
Uh, okay, so the second one to address the nature of angels in the Old Testament it's called, is heavenly ones, um, and it is Siamin. Um, it, it Psalms 89.5 through 7 illustrates that. It's often translated otherwise as heavens. Okay, so Siamin it can be like God created the heavens, God created the Siamin and the earth. Okay, um, and so... Uh, it's translated as uh, heavens. Uh, the context obviously helps you know whether or not it's talking about uh, stars of like the heavens, like the universe, or if it's talking about spiritual beings. Does that make sense? Um, because it, it is used uh, both ways. Yeah, Psalm 89 is a long psalm. We're not going to read the whole thing uh, because, of, because of that. But if we look at Psalm 89, 5, it says, Rejoice with him, O Sa'amin, bow down to him. So that, it's doing a physical action of bowing down. Then all Elohim, for he is avenges the blood uh, okay, rejoice, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's lands. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. Now, the, they are choosing, and like I, like I said, this is why we're doing uh, Hebrew and not English, because heavens here is... Uh, they're, not tra they're not translating this as holy ones, and so I'm going to present to you why, I mean, they have their reasons, and part of it is, I think, they have more of a naturalistic worldview and a world lens, so they're not necessarily looking for in a supernatural worldview always. Um, but I would say that these both, in 5 and in 4, should be translated as holy ones, um, uh, as stated there because it's in parallel. This is poetry, and the way poetry works in Hebrew is there one line and then another line that restates it in another way. Does that make sense? Rejoice with him, O heavens. If that's the cosmos, then it's not in agreement with the second line, which is bow down to him, all gods. Does that make sense? And so, and gods here is not necessarily uh, a, a reference to pagan gods, this just is a reference to, it's another, we'll get to it, Elohim is another uh, ontological nature term, uh, talking about the nature of a being rather than their status. We like the, when we hear the word Elohim or the word God, we automatically tend to assign attributes to it. But in Hebrew, the only attribute that word gets is spiritual, heavenly. Does that make sense? Uh, in the heavenly realm. Um, it doesn't have automatically assigned to it, you know, uh, God, you know, the Almighty or the uh, the God of gods. Does that make sense? Like, not the supreme God. It's that's why we, we, it says a lot of times, God Almighty. It gives these. It get that's assigning attribute to God as the supreme God. 
Now, if it wants to talk specifically about God, uh, capital G, God, it's going to use, you're going to see the Lord in your Bible. And that word, if it's all capitalized, is Yahweh. Okay. And sometimes you'll see uh, Yahweh Elohim, see, or Yahweh God, or the Lord God. You've seen that before, right? Um, so here this is in parallel, and then in the next verse, it's also in par parallel. Uh, let the... Uh, Well, four six says, for who in the skies can compare to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings, right? So it's like in me, uh, is like the Lord. For God, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, right? And that's also uh, a tom and awesome above all who are around him, okay? So the third, any questions about that or ponderings? So the next one is, it also has two forms, and the third word is the nature of angels is stars, right? This is going along that same theme of heavens, um, stars, kokamim, ko um, Job 38, 5 uh, through 7 uh, illustrates this. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, and who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God, now that's another poetry parallel, uh, shouted for, for joy. And then we have sons of God kicking up in there again, and sons of God is a, is a status, uh, uh, hierarchy statement for angels in the Old Testament. It's interesting that we in the New Testament are children of God. So just to be kind of putting those pieces together. So the fourth word of the nature of angels in the Old Testament is holy ones. And it is kedoim. And that, again, is in Psalm 89, 5, 7 as an example. And verse 7, it's right there. God greatly feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. Okay, so the fifth, are you guys tracking? Are we falling asleep? Okay, well, I can understand. Like I said, I really geeked out today. So the fifth word for the nature of angels in the Old Testament is God's divine beings, Elohim, okay? Now, this is the one that gets tricky because this one is used a lot for God himself, but it's also used very generically for all other spiritual beings or gods uh, in the Old Testament. So it's either translated to speak of Yahweh or of gods. A biblical writer would use Elohim to label any entity that is not embodied by nature and is a member of the spiritual realm. Okay, an example of this is Psalm 89, 7. Um, oh, I didn't put Psalm, and Psalm 82, 1. I didn't put 89, 7 in there, I guess, but 
Psalm 82.1 says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Yeah, I was confusing because you were putting, not looking at it like the nature of beings, but as God himself. And how does he hold a council with himself? That seems weird. But he's not. Think of this First uh, Kings 22 passage in light of this verse, right? So in the First Kings 22 passage, he's see the Micaiah, the prophet, is seeing God seated on his throne in a council of the hosts of heaven on his right and then left, and he's having a discussion with them, right? And here, it's God has taken place in the divine council, that, that throne setting, and in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So in the midst of these spiritual beings, he holds judgment. Think of Daniel 7, where the books are opened, and there's this divine scene, right? And they're sitting down, and that's really a judgment scene, right? And whether or not you are written in the, the book, right, or, or not, and your deeds. Oh, it's just in reverse order. 89.7 says, a, a God greatly to be filled, the count, so God, that's just God, Elohim, but God, proper God, but still an Elohim. If you look at the Hebrew, that's still Elohim. There's no difference to that. The context determines whether it should be capitalized <laughs> for us. That's a translator. The translator is doing that. Um, or should be lowercase for uh, little g God, like Baal or Ashereth or uh, Moth. I mean, all those are gods, of, but they're, they're bad gods. Okay? So the second term used in the Old Testament is status or hierarchy, right? So like my title, pastor. So there are six Hebrew words used for status and hierarchy, used for angels, okay, or for the heavenly host. So let's, let's take a look at them now. The first for hierarchy is assembly, and that is edda. So that's part of that, getting at that idea of the council or the divine, the gathering, right? The context determines if it's an earthly or a heavenly assembly, which we've already kind of discovered with all of these words, right? Uh, Psalms 81, 82.1 is a good example of a heavenly assembly, right? Uh, God has taken his place in the divine uh, edia, in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Okay, and the translators decided to use counsel there again instead, okay? which is fine. The second word for hierarchy is council, which is sa'ad uh, in the Hebrew. And the context, again, determines if it's a heavenly, earthly or a heavenly council. Psalm 89.7 is a good example of a heavenly council. God, a God greatly to be filled in the council of the Holy Ones and awesome above all who are around him. Not all spiritual beings sit on the Council, so it's a place of status. Now, do we know by the Old Testament who sits on the council? Not really, okay, not not clearly, okay. But we know there are spiritual beings sitting on council, okay. The word, the third word for hierarchy is congregation, right? 
you sometimes if I'm corresponding with somebody and I'm talking about one of you guys, but I don't want to use your name because I want to keep anonymity, I use your status, a congregant. Does that make sense? So there's a congregation. The context determines if it's an earthly or heavenly congregation, a gathering. Um, a good example of this is Psalm 89.5, right? And here in that bi the Bible, it's translated as assembly, right? Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the congregation of the holy ones, or the assembly of the holy ones, okay? Everybody tracking? There's a different status uh, thing. So the fourth word for hierarchy is assembled, coming together, assembly meeting. This is not uh, used a ton, but the context determines if it's an earthly or heavenly meeting place, like the throne room of God or Washington, D.C., right? If you're meeting in Washington, D.C., that communicates some status. Does that make sense? Um, and so uh, Isaiah 14, 13 speaks of a heavenly place of authority. Now, Isaiah 14, 13 is talking about a fallen angel, most likely. Uh, tradition says it's Satan. Uh, 13 said, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. And that would be a word, that word stars is about the angels of God, okay? And I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. So I will sit on the mount of Sa'ad. I think the Hebrew word was Sa'ad, right? No, Moed. And so there, I will sit on the mount of Moed in the far reaches of the north. That's a position of authority. Does that make sense? He's taking God's place of authority. And the fifth word for hierarchy is court, uh, the in, in, and it's an Aramaic word, and so it's only going to show up in Daniel and Ezra, and Daniel is the place where it shows up in the context for spiritual uh, context. Uh, nine says, and I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was right as snow, and the hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. Thousands and thousands served him, and ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The court set and judgment, and the books were opened. So, the, so right now, and actually, to be quite honest, uh, just from biblical data, it's pretty ambiguous, okay? Uh, the intertestamental period, Second Temple literature, they try to make it less ambiguous, and some of the New Testament pulls from that, um, that but they don't take it all, all the intertestamental period lock, stock, and barrel. So we don't see all of it repeated or totally embraced in the New Testament. We do see some of it. And then there's the argument of, so obviously the New Testament's focused on Jesus, not directly on angels. So what part of 
the intertestamental period literature writings are they endorsing and taking and bringing in to the Bible or what part are they just expecting you to know because it's part of their makeup and their culture so part we don't we're not able to clearly answer that question but there are things several passages in the New Testament that are very hard and puzzling if you don't understand the intertestamental period literature and writings. And once you understand those, then it makes some of these other troubled areas um, like Jesus descending into lower parts of the earth, that whole passage there, um, becomes very clear if you understand uh, intertestamental period view of the cosmos, uh, of the spiritual realm. Did, Did that help? So the intertestamental period reduces ambiguity, but it doesn't totally take it away. And then it doesn't seem like the New Testament writers, there is a certain amount of endorsement, but not, it doesn't feel like wholehearted endorsement. So it's still ambiguous. But you do see different wills. Like you have these angels that are sitting in a court. They're part of a court. Um, And God is the judge. And, you know, the angels or the jury. But you, I would say that part of what happens, this scene, is John takes this scene, and he, in Revelation 4 and 5, he puts the 24 elders who are around the throne as the court. You could almost make that tie that, that the church or the people of God replace angels. Okay. Um, and that's what I'm saying. It's talking about forming our eternal perspective and that phrase where Paul says, don't you know you will judge angels? Because if you're judging angels, you're sitting on some kind of court. Does that make sense? And it's a status symbol, right? Well, I mean, they will ultimately be judged by God, right? But God uses his people to do all kinds of things. Um, And why are angels redeemed or all that stuff, that's all ambiguous. We don't really know. It doesn't, the Bible doesn't speak to it. Rape them? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that the, I mean, I, I'd have to go to that context, and we will get to that, so I don't want to steal that. But I really do think that it is, um, God is calling us to joint rule with him. That was the, the mandate from the beginning. Does that make sense? Um, and so in reclaiming that, he's, he's joining in that. So um, I think there is uh, a participation in executing sentences there. I mean, God ultimately is the one that's acting in that. But as we all know, God acts, chooses sev- to act through uh, servants, through his people, through angels, right? Um, Okay, 
So the sixth word for hierarchy is prince. Um, and this is, which is saw, and it's mainly in Aramaic, but it's also in Hebrew. The two illustrations of that are Joshua 5.14 and Daniel 10.13. So Joshua 5.14, the word commander is prince. It's, that's the saw word right there. And he said, no, but I am the prince or the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, now I have come, and Joshua fell on his face on the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does the Lord say to his servant? Now, we have a whole discussion about the angel of the Lord being uh, pre-incarnation. Uh, a Christophany is the big theological word for that. Um, but status is really what we're trying to discuss here. I do think this is a, a Christophany, um, and we can explore that at another time. Um, but here we got status, right? And then Daniel, especially um, 10, and it's actually several times in this passage, um, but 13 is enough. The prince of the kingdom of Persia, talking about a spiritual being, withstood me, a bad spiritual being, withstood me uh, 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, right, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. So then we have two princes. We have a demonic prince of some sort, a fallen angel prince, and then we have uh, Michael. Now, now in the Bible, there's only two angels that are named in biblical literature, Michael and Gabriel. Um, of course, in second temporal literature, which we'll get into, uh, I don't know if we have time to get into tonight, but there's over 30, actually, names, and we're not going to go over all 30, because that just, but we'll go over, uh, I think, seven uh, key names there. So the seventh word for hierarchy is sons of God, Banai Elohim, okay? And um, we, we really run into this in, in Genesis and in Job. Um, Job 1.6 says, And now there was a day when the sons of God came to, to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, or the abbess of the Satan, came among them. And so this is a spiritual scene almost like a divine court, God's holding court, and these guys show up, the sons of, sons of God, angels, okay? Um, then the other one, which people will argue about, uh, but I think it's spiritual beings that uh, go outside of their nature and their realm and make defilement. This is why the flood happens. That's my opinion. Not everybody will agree with me on that, but that's why I stand on that. When men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw, so the angels, saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took them as their wives as they chose. So, uh, yeah, that's the whole race of giants and the contamination and uh, we can have a long discussion about that at some other time. That's benai Elohim, sons of God, yeah. And a, if you look at benai, that phrase, benai, or just type into your search sons of God and put it in quotes, then it's going to pop all those up. Um, and uh, depending on your translation, it's mainly going to be Genesis 6 uh, and Job. <coughs> but if you have a newer translation that's giving uh, preference to the Dead Sea Scroll manuscripts over the Masoretic text, then it'll also come up in Deuteronomy 32, 8. 
Okay, so now, man, a lot of information. Now we've come to the six poems that describe their jobs, their responsibilities or functions or attributes related to a task. Okay, so this is what they do. So the first one, anybody want to guess? I already clicked it up there. Angel, Malak, right? Messenger, right? <coughs> they are messengers. So the first Hebrew word related to their responsibilities is Malak, or Malak, which means messenger, as already mentioned. So um, it's translated as angel if the messenger is from heaven. Uh, so Genesis 21, 17 is an example. My Wife didn't think it was the best example, but it's what I put in there, so it's what we got. And God, Elohim, heard the voice of the, of the boy, and the messenger of God, or the angel of God, called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard your voice of the boy where he is. Right. So this messenger of God, this angel of God. Okay? The second Hebrew word related to their responsibilities is minister, okay? Siret, uh, Psalms 103, 20-21 is a good example of this. Bless the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all of hosts, his ministers who do his will. And that's talking about angels, well, all spiritual beings. The third Aramaic word related to their responsibility is watcher, and that is ir, in which means being wakeful or a guardian. And Daniel chapter 4 is the word we have those. Uh, it's in 4, 13, 17, and 23. Uh, we're going to look at 13. And I saw in the visions of my, of my head as I lay on my bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven, okay? So a watcher. And watcher is actually the phrase in the intertestamental period that gets picked up and used for angels the most. It's a very, Enoch really likes to use the word watcher, um, mainly in a negative context. Like the watchers were the ones that fell back in Genesis chapter 6. Okay, so the first is best to consider as a group since they apply to the same responsibilities of a military group, okay? The Hebrew word are host, so sabah, or mighty ones, geboim, or uh, another word for mighty ones would be abarim, okay? So examples are found in 1 Kings 22.19, right? We read that already. And Micaiah said, therefore, the word of the Lord, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right and on his left. So that word host, there is the, all the angels of heaven, that great host. And then Psalm 103.20 says, bless the Lord, all you his angels, you mighty ones, your giboim, who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. So the mighty Ones. And then this one, it's really interesting. Um, this is in Psalm 78, 24, talking about um, them getting manna in the desert. And he says, God rained down on them manna to eat and gave them grain, the grain of heaven 
man ate the bread of the, that's that Hebrew word, Adoni, I, I can't remember it, Adamin. So, and he sent them food in abundance. So he gave them the bread of the angels, is what that says there, but of, or of the mighty angels. So, um, so those, that's those three uses there. Uh, another responsibility is related to them is mediator. Now, I know we like to say there was one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus, and that is very true, and we can hang on to that. But um, as messengers, they do actually also mediate. Uh, Job 33.23 speaks of that. Uh, if there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousands declared to declare to man what is right for him. So he's, Job is trying to get Job to me, an angel to mediate for Job. That's what's going on there. Um, the sixth Hebrew word related to their responsibility uh, is cherub, cherubim or cherubim in the Hebrew and seraphim, which uh, seraphim, these are just transliterations of these two uh, words for spiritual beings. Uh, these are guardians of God's presence, right? And so we see them show up in Ezekiel, Exodus 37.9, right? The cherubim spread out their wings about overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces one to another toward the mercy seat where the faces of the cherubim. And this is talking about um, the tabernacle uh, being built. And we know the tabernacle is a shadow of what? The heavenly things. And so we see these cherubim show up in Ezekiel, right? In the vi heavenly vision of God's throne. So that's why it's Ezekiel 10.1 says, then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, um, there will appear something like sapphire in the appearance of the throne. I've already talked a lot about cherubim and cherubs and how they're not little uh, guys, you know, flying around with bows. Um, and then the other one is seraphim, and uh, which is all related to cherubim. Uh, seraphim is actually the playing off the Egyptian ideology of a throne guardian, and cherubim is playing off the Babylonian uh, ideology of throne guardians. Uh, the root for seraphim is, is, is serpent, actually. So um, above him stood a seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. If you were going to try to make any kind of an argument for angels having wings, this would be your own, th these two passages would be the only place that you could go. But these are very unique spiritual beings uh, that guard the throne or guard the presence of God. Um, so now that we have a say on angels in the Old Testament, we're going to turn our attention to the intertestamental writings. Uh, one of the outstanding features of these writings it is that it writings is a well-developed concept of angels. So in, in the Hebrew text, we kind of have not a, it's not weak, it's not wimpy, right? We just covered a whole lot of material um, and got some ideas, right? Uh, their, their nature is that of a spirit that disembodied and the words that are used in scripture for that. And we got, they have different ranks, right? They sit on a council. Some of them are in the host. Some of them um, are, are princes, right? But it's not super, super like specific, right? Right? So in the intertestamental period, I think 
maybe part of it was they didn't like it being so vague, and so uh, some commentaries and some things were written um, that tried to expand that. And not that these are authoritative, um, but, but they're informative uh, to w what they were thinking and how they thought and what's informing what is being written uh, to a certain extent in the New Testament. So let's take a look at the na nature and abilities of angels in the writings of the intertestamental period. Now, if you remember, uh, the, the word se-amin se for heavens uh, could either mean the heavens, as in the cosmos, or as in spiritual beings. It would seem like the book of Jubilees almost took that word in Genesis uh, to mean, uh, Genesis 1-1, to mean spiritual beings, because as we look at this passage here, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, so they might be taking that first statement of that God created the spiritual beings, and then he created the earth, okay? Um, and so it's interesting just to kind of have that seed planted there as we look at some of this data. The book of Jubilees is our first example. The nature and responsibility of angels is probably written around 100 B.C., so quite a bit of time before Christ. Um, originally written in Hebrew. Um, several copies were found with the Dead Sea Scrolls um, and uh, written in Hebrew. Um, and the, the Dead Sea School community gave it quite a bit of authority. Um, the other uh, Christian tradition uh, is the Ethiopian church gives it a lot of authority. Um, it's a canonical for them. And if they hadn't, we wouldn't even have this book because it, unless until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, but we're going to look at chapter 2, 1 through 2. Jubilees is basically a commentary on, on Genesis through Exodus, okay? Um, and it's called Jubilee because he breaks the, that time, those time periods up into the years of Jubilee. So every 49 years is the year of Jubilee, the 50th year. So it says in Jubilee 2-2, uh, and the angel of the presence spoke, so we have an angel who's in the presence of God, that's what that's talking about, spoke to Moses by the word of the Lord, saying, write the whole account of creation, that in six days the Lord God, now see how I was talking about when it's all capitals, right? So that would actually be in the Hebrew, in six days Yahweh Elohim, when Yahweh God, okay, that's how that would actually read, but we have it the Lord uh, completed all his work and all that he created, and he observed a Sabbath, the seventh day, and he sanctified it for all ages, and he set it as a sign uh, for all his works. That's really no new information, is it? No. Um, but this is interesting. For on the fourth day he created the heavens, which are above, and the earth, and the waters, and all the spirits which minister before him. Now that's new information, right? Now, remember, I said Sa'amin can mean spiritual host, so he's thinking, he's taking some liberty here to say this is when the spiritual host were, were created. And 
I would say that we don't have it very clearly stated in the text when the supernatural was created. Does that make sense? Um, some people might say the day when the moon and the stars were created. Okay. But that one is tenurable, right? It's doing the same thing he's doing. Does that make sense? It's just placing it in a different place. So listen to this. Minister before him, the angels of, so now we have different classifications of angels here. The angels of presence, the angels of sanctification, the angels of the spirit of fire, the angels of the spirit of the winds, the angels of the spirit of the clouds and darkness and snow, hill and frost, and the angels of the resoundings and thunders and lightnings, and the angels of the spirits of cold and heat and winter and springtime and harvest and summer, and all the spirits of his creatures which are in heaven and on earth. Okay, so this had was fairly accepted in Jewish writings. So this was not like a heretical book, and so this is a Jewish perspective on the creation of spiritual beings. And in this perspective, he lays out all these different roles or different kinds or functions, actually, for angels. So the Dead Sea Scrolls also shows the nature and responsibilities of angels. Now, you know that really geeky people labeled these things because it's 4Q432. I mean, come on. It can't get much more boring than that. But it's basically what, ca uh, what cave it was in, every cave's numbered, and that's how they come up uh, with the name. Um, now, this isn't like the Bible uh, where you have uh, tons and tons of manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts that you then compile and you make a complete translation. They're working off. One trans one manuscript, okay, and this manuscript's not perfect, right? It's it's, I mean, Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, two hundred. I mean, the oldest is like two hundred B.C. So, I mean, that's old, <laughs> okay, um, over two thousand years old, easy. Um, so, so there's missing pieces, and so when it has brackets or dot dot dot, means that the script can't be read. Okay, and so they're guessing or they're extrapolating what could be there. Does that make sense? Now that I've put you all to sleep, we're almost done. In your wisdom, talking about God, you established eternal. Established eternal. Bef now, see, there's something that was supposed to be there, but it's not there. Before creating them, you know all their deeds forever and ever. Without you, no, no, no thing is done. And nothing is known without your will. You have fashioned every spirit and judgment of and the judgments of all their deeds, right? You have stretched out the heavens for the, your glory. Everything which it contains, you have established according to your will. And powerful spirits according to their laws before they became holy angels, eternal spirits in their realms, luminaries according to to their mysteries, stars according to their circuits, all the stormy winds according to their roles, lightning and thunder according to their duties, and well-designed storehouses according to their purposes and according to their secrets. 
right? So there's some missing pieces in there, but you get the idea, right? And and it's expanding a little bit or or trying to flesh out the idea of these angels, right? All right. One more, and then I think I'm going to stop, and we'll pick this up next time we meet. Um, the, the idea of fallen angels comes up in Second Temple literature, uh, First Enoch 21. Uh, it's there on your paper. So it says, and I came to an empty place. This is Enoch, uh, the, the writer who calls himself Enoch. It's not Enoch of the Bible. Um, and I saw there neither a heaven above nor an earth below, but a chaotic and a terrible place. And there I saw seven stars of heaven bound together in it. Now, these, this is talking about angels. That's that terminology is stars. Like great mountains and burning with fire. At that moment I saw, said, for which sin are they bound? And for what reason were they cast in here? And the one of the holy angels, Uriel, that's one of the, the uh, seven archangels, Uriel, uh, who was with me, guiding me, spoke to me and said to me, Enoch, for what reason are you asking and for what reason do you question that exhibit eagerness? There, these are among the stars of heaven which have transgressed the commandments of the Lord and are bound in this place until the completion of 10 million years according to the number of their sins. I then proceeded from what area to that area to another place which is even more terrible and I saw a terrible thing a great fire that was burning and a flaming and flaming the place had a cleavage that extended to the last sea pouring out great pillars of fire neither its ex neither its extent nor its magnitude could I see nor was I able to estimate at that moment what a terrible opening in this place and the pain to look at it, then Uriel, one of the holy angels, uh, sorry about the squirrel box there, it doesn't like uh, a apostrophe, uh, the accent mark. Um, one of the holy angels who was with me responded and said to me, Enoch, why are you afraid like this? And I answered and I said, I am frightened because of this terrible place and the spectacular of this painful thing. And he said unto me, this place is the prison house for the angels. They are destined here forever. Right, so you have this fallen angel idea. How close were they to Adam and Eve? Yeah, so that would be a pretty good, yeah, there's a couple other places that are a lot more specific to that, but yeah, that would be the bottomless pit yeah, of Revelation. Yeah. That's where that idea is being drawn from. All right, um... Oh, one more, just one, this one, and then I'll be done. Angels appear as men in the Old Testament, right? And uh, not men with wings, so I'm sorry, the, the autistic renditions are not good. Uh, but they appear as men in the Old Testament, they appear as men in intertestamental writings, and as men in the New Testament, right? So in the Old Testament, uh, this is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we're actually quite familiar with that. Um, the three men uh, who come are three angels. Um, and the Lord appeared to, uh, to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, and he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. 
When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And if we go ahead and read that whole context, those three men or three, three angels, well, two angels and the angel of the Lord, which is a Christo- another Christophany, uh, Christ showing up um, before his inclination. Um, and then if we were to go to uh, the pseudepigrapha, um, um, and look in there, this is, I believe, Enoch uh, 17.1, and they lifted me up in the, into one place where there were ones like flaming fire, speaking of angels, and when they so desire, they appear like men, okay? And then uh, Hebrews 13.2 says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. So, um, yeah, strange. Uh, what is that that show that was prop, prop high, is that highway to heaven is that what's that one that where he shows up as what yeah I think Michael Lant yeah and he yeah so that I mean and he's helping out people and getting people out of out of a bind um, all right uh, okay one more we got we got time I, I'm having fun so. The Bible only records two names, right, of good angels, right? Uh, Michael and Gabriel, those are the ones we know. But it also records several names of sp- fallen spiritual beings, right? So we got like Marduk, Asherah, Baal, uh, Mol- uh, Molech, right? These are all bad dudes, spiritual beings that uh, are leading men astray in the, in the biblical narrative. Uh, in the New Testament period, more angels, good angels are named. These names focus mainly on archangels, also known sometimes as watchers. And then they also name uh, evil angels like Azarel and Belial. Uh, those would be bad angels that they name in Second Temple, really. So, All right, so here we go. First uh, Enoch 20. And these are the names of the angels who watch Suriel, uh, in the Greek, Uriel, Uriel, okay? One of the holy angels, for he is the eternity and of, uh, and of, trim- he is, for he is of eternity and of trembling. Raphael, one of the holy angels, for he is of the spirits of man. Rag- Ragul, one of the holy angels who takes vengeance for the world and for the luminaries. Michael. One of the holy angels, for he is obedient in his benevolence over the people and the nations. So, so yeah, Sorakrel. Who, uh, one of the holy angels who are set over the spirits of mankind who sin in the spirit. Gabriel, one of the holy angels who oversees the Garden of Eden and the serpents and the cherubim. There you go. All right, I'm going to have to stop. I'm not going to be able to finish. We're going to pick up on the idea of angels being an army the next time we meet. Any questions about the dump truck I just dumped on you? Oh, yeah, so that's good. So think of if you when, it, when you're thinking about the intertestamental period, so... Um, it's it's quite a long time. The intertestamental period 
um, is from the ending of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament. So it's about 500 years, roughly, from the end of Malachi to the beginning of the writing of the Gospels, right? Um, when I was growing up, and I think this is just my tradition that did uh, kind of did me a disservice, but when I was growing up, uh, people would talk about this section of the Bible as the silent years, okay? And I think that's a misnomer. Um, I don't think, I think this is silent in the sense of nothing's canonized, okay? But there was a lot of stuff going on in this uh, four, four 500-year period. This is called the intertestamental period. So um, the Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, right? This Bible doesn't have that. But I think it was written in like the 400 B.C.s, like mid-400 B.C.s, okay? And then, um, so the temple had been rebuilt. The second temple had been rebuilt. And then, no, okay, yeah, so let me, let me run you through. So what happens is you have the tabernacle uh, is established in Exodus. They build that. And then they, uh, they, they move into the land, and they set up the tabernacle in the land, um, not in Jerusalem because that city isn't uh, captured. It's at Shiloh. They set up the tabernacle. They worshiped there for many years, actually, till the, the reign of David uh, and until the reign of Solomon. They worship in the, in the tabernacle, the tent that they carried around the desert for 40 years. Okay, and then David wants to build the temple of God, but God says, no, because your hands are covered in blood. You, you've just, you, <laughs> your whole reign was defined by fighting battles. And so David does all the prep work buys all the supplies, and his son Solomon builds the temple. So the temple of Solomon is built. It was one of the wonders of the world. It was gorgeous, beautiful, and that's built in Jerusalem. Then Israel, um, shortly after Solomon builds the temple, Israel splits. The, uh, two, uh, ten, northern, ten tribes go to the north, and, and, two, and two tribes stay to the south. Uh, the northern uh, tribes fall in like 300 years, and then it takes like 500 years uh, for the southern tribes to fall. They f uh, so Syria takes the northern tribes. Uh, Babylon takes the southern tribes. In 586 B.C., the temple of Solomon is destroyed, okay? Totally just, and really chopped up and carried to Babylon, Okay, because then we, and then that's in our Bible, the time period that we're going to pick up would be Ezra, Daniel, Nehemiah, those are those time periods. The prophets that are covering that, like Jeremiah, Lamentations, Jeremiah is predicting and telling him the Babylonians are going to take out, uh, that you're going to fall. And they'll, they'll fall of themselves. They'll say, well, the people of God, we can't fall. We're not going to fall. Um, they're confident. But they fall because of discipline of the Lord. The Lord uses Babylon. So then the temple is destroyed, and it, they go into captivity for 70 years. And then they come out of captivity, and they, Nehemiah is about them rebuilding the wall. Ezra is about them getting the temple rebuilt. Um, they finally get the temple rebuilt, but it takes almost 100 years to get the temple rebuilt. So the temple's rebuilt. It's not great. The, yo the young generation's all excited. 
the old generation's crying because they remember the good old days. Um, and then um, the Samotomoyal by Herod the Great, you've heard of Herod. Um, he comes into that temple and he renovates it. And he creates the whole Temple Mount that you see today, uh, the, the, the pr where the Jews pray at the Wailing Wall. That's a retaining wall. It's not a wall of the temple. It's a retaining wall for the Temple Mount. Herod built that to expand the Temple Mount so he could build a big old temple area. Now, he doesn't tear down that, the, the second temple, but he expands it. So from the building of the second temple to the destruction of that temple is almost 600 years, okay? Um, that's called the second temple period. That intertestamental period covers that period, okay? Um, the second temple is destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. And it wasn't supposed to be destroyed, but uh, if you look at the geography, it's, on, it's a mount, it's a, t a hill, and so the Jews had gone to the temple, and they were using it as a fortress, and in the fighting, it caught on fire. And so then it had a lot of gold, a lot of ornate, and all that gold melted from the fire, and so the Roman soldiers, because part of their pay is loot, okay, and so to get to the loot, to get to the gold, they tore it apart. Um, and you can still go there today and see the, sto the remains of the temple where they threw it off the mount, temple mount, and to get to the, the loot, the, the gold. So then it was destroyed. So then when I'm talking about uh, second temple, temple literature, I'm talking about literature that's been written in that time period or the intertestamental period. It's still that same time period. It's just a different way of saying those two time periods. The intertestamental is probably a little shorter than the second temple because uh, I have the New Testament books are being written as early as AD uh, like 50 where the, se in a, uh, the second temple period ends at AD 70. Does that make sense? Yeah. Any other questions? That's a good question. Sometimes I use terms and I don't take the time to explain them, so. It is, I, like I said, that was a lot to throw out there. So um, I think that it's good to just think of the intertestamental books as, as not uh, canonical, not authoritative, right, but beneficial. They just, they give us insight on the how people are thinking and, and how they view it, yes. Yeah, the pseudepigrapha, the Old Testament pseudepigrapha is what <laughs> is where the Jubilees is. Um, they're not readily available. In fact, the last good copy of the like the pseudepigrapha was done in 1983 by Yale, um, and that's where like where Jubilees is. First and Second Enoch are in there. Yeah, so the Apocrypha, that's, a, that's different. Those books are in the Second Temple period. Um, and they do, like, First and Second Maccabees, uh, Bell and the Dragon, Judith. And all those are in that time period. Um, and they're not, and I didn't quote any, uh, for, quote any of them tonight. Um, I don't know, partly because 
they, I mean, they don't talk as much about angels as some of these other books. Um, but, let's see here. So Charles, J James Charles, uh, Charlesworth uh, for the Old Testament Pseudepigrapha, Yale University Press. I don't know if you can read that up there at the bottom, but that would be a good book for the pseudepigrapha. Then you, I can, you look it up online. Yeah, look it up online. I mean, look, the, the notes are online and that stuff is on there. Um, and then for the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, yeah, I mean, the, the thing with the Dead Sea Scrolls is that that stuff, uh, that stuff keeps getting updated because, you know, scho scholarly work runs really, really slow, and then it becomes political as well. So this is discovered in 1948, so a lot of the text and a lot of the manuscripts still, still are not released and still aren't uh, uh, translated and copied yet. So that's still in process, and that was a long time ago. So that's over a long 80 years ago now. Seventy-five. Okay, I don't want to make it more than it is. I just that was a guess. So, oh wow, yeah, yeah, pretty big deal. Yeah, right. Exciting archaeological discovery. Yeah, yeah. So it had just been coming out, yeah. All right. Any other questions or thoughts? So the Dead Sea Scrolls was pretty influential in a lot of scholarly work and blew, and, and really uh, some of the theories of textual critics, like the negative textual critics, just really blew them away. So it just... Um, Yeah, that's that's one. Yeah, they were. He's actually looking for a, sh uh, a sheep, uh, and those on the down on the Dead Sea up in the hills. There's just like tons of caves, and so instead of like going up into climbing up every cave, he was going around throwing rocks, and then he threw the rock in there, and it made b pottery. Obviously, doesn't breaking pottery sounds different than hitting rock, and so when he heard the breaking pottery, then he climbed up in there and saw that there was. A squirrel. And ended up being a whole network of caves with these uh, jaws. Uh, I can't remember the name of the jaw, but there's a special jaw that they put the squirrel in and then seal it to preserve it and then also to bury it. Like they would retire squirrels. So you have a book, like you guys have, we have Bibles, and I'm sure you have Bibles at home that you've loved and you've used, but they're just, you know, kind of falling apart. Well, when they would use a, a Torah squirrel or any kind of squirrel, because um, we have a prolific, we have a ton of books, right? Uh, and we don't put near as much value, but books were very expensive or squirrels were very expensive. And so when they would retire it and it almost like a burial ceremony. So they would seal it in the jaws and put it in the cave uh, for safekeeping. And there's a lot of theories on what community placed those there. 
And I think finally, I think part of it is they think it's a couple different communities that were putting those books in the desert. Jewish communities mainly, yeah. Um, one for sure is like the Essenes, and then the other one is the, is the Qumran community. But there's some other ones. Um, and it's a good place to store stuff. I mean, it's arid, it's dry, it never rains. So, And then putting it in a cave keeps it at that, you know, no heat. Um, anyways. All right. Yeah, there might still be some. I got to go get a permit and go explore, all right? Go <laughs> I've been there uh, to the Qumran community and uh, looked over at the cave, on one of the cave systems. I didn't go in it, but looked at the cave systems where they found uh, a large number of the corals. <laughs> 